Well, once again, it's time for Inside EMS, the internationally recognized Inside EMS. And we want to thank everybody who is listening, who is sending us comments about shows. Kelly, we are getting some folks who are really sending us some great ideas of uh, shows that we're going to put into production and see if we can get out there. But uh, Pulsera is the proud sponsor of this episode of the Inside EMS podcast. Learn how you can create a robust community paramedicine program at www.pulsera.com slash EMS. And my partner is here, the one we call Kelly Grayson. Kelly Grayson, what's going on? Oh, nothing. Just the usual, brother. You say internationally recognized. Is, is that if we were on the streets? Someone say, I say, are, are you the chaps from inside EMS? It and who told be. you to talk that way, Rob Lawrence? <laughs> it could very well be, but uh, I think Rob is a little bit more sophisticated in his uh, language than that. But uh, you do a good Greg Freeze, you don't do a good Kelly Grayson. I mean, a, a good Rob Lawrence. You do a pretty good Kelly Grayson. But uh, you know, one of the things, one of the things too that I wanted to uh, talk about really quick is, you know, you and I have been in the EMS field for uh, a long time. We're considered, mm-hmm. I guess, the dinosaurs of EMS and uh no we've no been doing- sharks sharks okay, sharks but- have learned to evolve or has it- we're, we're, okay. we're still anxious but we're, we've evolved all right good well it's good <laughs> that you can uh, put that in but one of the things that i think is important is we've been doing the show for a long time but there's a generation of of ems practitioners out there that don't know who we are mm-hmm. and uh you know certainly yeah. we have our following certainly we have our fans but maybe it's just time to give a little bit of overview is why the heck do we get to do inside EMS? What makes us so, uh, uh, you know, special that we get to talk to everybody. And uh, maybe it's time just to do a little bit of overview of who Kelly Grayson is, who Chris Subalero is, and uh, how we were lucky enough to get a, a little bit of a talk show every week. But uh, Kelly, you want to give them an overview about uh, your experience in this field? Sure. I'm a critical care paramedic, uh, have been for 20 years or so. Um, I've been a, uh, I've been a paramedic for 28 years and, uh, a EMS instructor for 27 and a half started with a small rural ambulance service and, and moved my way up and, uh, through various positions, education director, field supervisor, so on and so forth. And I'm currently employed as a paramedic for Acadian Ambulance in Southwest Louisiana. But uh, my my co-passion, aside from working a, a truck, is uh, EMS education and advocacy. And um, I've, I've long been a, a friend uh, and, and mentee of, of Brian Bledsoe. Uh, Brian slapped me down uh, in an online forum many, many years ago. Uh, when I was being particularly cocky and, and making uh, inappropriate uh, uh, humor. And uh, he called me out on it, and rightfully so. And, and we, we kind of struck up a friendship. And, and, and Brian has, has kind of helped me uh, get a leg up in, in several stages of my career when I decided I would start, um, start uh, writing uh, shortly after the, the demise of my first marriage. I, I kind of wrote as therapy. Uh, and when my book came out, um, Brian Bledsoe pointed me to the folks at EMS one, uh, 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 Chris call primarily and said, um, give this guy a chance to write about something. So 
that's how my my column, uh, the ambulance driver's perspective, uh, got started, stemming from my blog and and my first volume of my memoirs. It sounds so freaking arrogant to say memoirs, <laughs> but uh, um, but it started from that, and and I've had various other opportunities to write and and speak since then, and that's pretty much what I do, almost as much as I. I work in ambulances. Uh, I, I am afforded the privilege to travel around the country and speak about EMS issues and to write about EMS issues. And for some reason, reason people uh, people um, listen to what I have to say for the most part. Uh, sometimes I'm totally full of crap, and sometimes I think I'm a pretty perceptive guy. Uh, but uh, the the opinion varies. Well, on this show, he's more or less full of crap, but uh, also, I mean, one of the preeminent educators in our career field. So, you know, Kelly Grayson goes on the world tour uh, every so often, and I think he, he travels about, uh, well, not in the days of COVID, but Kelly, you've traveled as much as 200 days a year uh, going to EMS conferences yeah. and states to state, state to state. Um, and you're a really sought after speaker. Um, and you do have that personality that really entertains and, uh, um, and really educates, but, uh, um, but a little bit about me, you know, a little bit about me, unlike Kelly, I started off my career with a small company out of Washington, DC called the United States air force. And, uh, I was, uh, um, I got out in 1996 and uh, went to a, a civilian paramedic school, Northeastern University up in, in Boston, Massachusetts, because being trained in the military, you know, I wanted to be able to get some of the, um, you know, the medical aspects that I didn't get. And uh, so I started to work uh, in the field uh, for a long time. I worked up in the Northeast, uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, Natick, places like that, and then went down to Texas and worked for uh, MedStar in Fort Worth, Texas for about 10 years. I was a paramedic of FTO. Uh, I became the clinical coordinator and then the clinical director of MedStar, which is a high-performance EMS system. And one of the things that that allowed me to do was to become an educator and learn the uh, importance of training paramedics and EMTs to be more confident in their abilities. And in that time frame, as well, as I started to take on an operational component, I had the opportunity to run that system from an operational standpoint uh, two or three times during my tenure in that transition. I had the opportunity to work as operations supervisor. And then I went to uh, Christian Hospital up in North St. Louis County, where I was the chief of EMS for about five years which really kind of helped polish my operational expertise. I've had the opportunity to serve in the career field uh, with uh, being on uh, board of directors for NAMT and NEMSMA. And uh, I enjoy teaching at conferences. And uh, I've taken more of a leadership spin in my career than a clinical spin, where I try to teach people now the art and science of leadership and really how to take care of you, the EMT and paramedic. I am not averse to know that there is poor leadership in EMS and trying to be the voice of reason when it comes to how to take care of you, our precious resource in the field uh, is a little bit of a daunting task, but uh, the show has been great. We've had the opportunity to talk about a lot of different things uh, from clinical aspects to operational aspects to giving our opinions to leadership topics. 
And today, Kelly, we're going to go ahead and talk about some clinical uh, clinical topics. And we've heard this from our listeners who are sending us emails and asking for uh, suggestions on shows. And we haven't done this in a long time because usually we try to pontificate on things that are happening inside EMS. <laughs> but it really is as educators at the core of who we are as educators, we really need to start thinking about uh, doing a little bit more uh, of shows. Maybe we'll do a, a once a month on clinical issues. Today, we're going to focus on heart failure. And this is one of those calls that really kind of give uh, EMTs and paramedics a little bit of challenge because you really have to get into the pathophysiology of what is going on in the heart, right? And when we think about cardiology, cardiology mm -hmm. is one of these topics that really give people a little bit of intimid intimidation. You know, I'm a mm -hmm. critical care paramedic as well. I've had the opportunity to go to uh, all the courses and actually uh, wrote a book with Rosie Adam, who was in charge of the University of Iowa's Learning Resource Center on critical care. And from a CHF standpoint, this really gets deeper into just chest pain. This really gets deeper into that uh, aspect of, uh, you know, somebody is saying, um, you know, they don't feel well. And it really develops more uh, knowledge. So we're going to give a little bit of overview. But Kelly Grayson, in your uh, unique way, give us an overview of what heart failure is. Well, uh Heart failure is simply uh, inability of the, the uh, heart to, to maintain uh, needed circulation. Uh, now, it can, the body's compensatory mechanisms can make up for that shortfall in, in uh, stroke volume or, or uh, what have you, ejection fraction. Um, but in some way, it's, uh, it's not sufficient to meet the metabolic demands of the body. Um, and uh, if the process uh, continues or worsens, then eventually the heart failure uh, will, will worsen uh, until eventually you wind up where it's totally in, insufficient to meet the demands. And you wind up with uh, cardiogenic shock uh, shortly followed by a car, uh, cardiopulmonary arrest and death. Um, I liken it to, to my students as, as a car whose engine has been damaged but still runs. Um, and we've all, when we were young and broke and struggling, had that car that you had to, you had to warm it up a little bit and, and baby it when you first started it and, and really, really, uh, be careful how you romped on the gas and, and treat it like with kid gloves. And it would still get you from point A to point B, even though it's not going to win any races. Um, but if you didn't baby it and really, really take good care of it and, and pay attention to maintenance and, and, and ease the stresses on it, it was going to leave you stranded one day. And, and that's essentially what, the, uh, what uh, a patient in heart failure is. Um, but what I don't think many EMS providers appreciate is that it is essentially, it's a terminal diagnosis. Uh, people yeah. in CHF, 50% uh, um, of your, your CHF uh, sufferers uh, will be dead within five years of diagnosis. Um, so it's it's essentially it's a a, a pretty uh, pretty significant uh, health problem um, that um, that a whole bunch of of money is spent every year uh, on heart failure. Uh, the numbers are something like uh, um, uh, five percent of the U.S. healthcare budget is spent on congestive heart failure, uh, and it's a huge money loser for hospitals. 
Yeah. Well, let's back up here a little bit and just give a little bit more context. So for those, you know, there's EMTs out there that listen to us as well. So the, uh, you know, the heart does its job, right? The right side of the heart gets the blood in or the right side of the heart takes the blood, moves it to the lungs. The lungs will oxygenate the blood. It'll come back to the left side of the heart, uh, hit the atria, fill the ventricles, and then the left ventricle will push that blood into the systemic circulation, right? So the heart has to work, as Kelly is saying, the heart has to work in a, in a you know, in synergy, right? Atria, atria squeeze, ventricles squeeze, one blood goes to the lungs, blood goes, um, one side goes to the lungs, one side goes to the body. So if one of those four chambers has a little bit of challenge, this is where heart failure could happen from. And there's yeah. different, there's right-sided heart failure, there's left-sided heart failure, there's diastolic, there's systolic failure. So there's a lot of different types of heart failure. Now, Kelly mentioned congestive heart failure. And this is what happens is when, let's say the left ventricle isn't squeezing as hard as it should, isn't ejecting all the blood out of the heart as it should, now it starts to back up into the left atrium. Then it starts to back up and go into the lungs. So think about it this way. If you've got a sink and your sink now gets clogged, you know, as a regular sink works, the, the water comes out of the tap, it goes right down the drain and it doesn't fill up the sink. But if that sink now becomes clogged, that water now starts to fill up. And the more it's clogged and the more it slows down, the more it starts to back up. And then finally, that water is going to spill out onto the floor. Well, finally, in congestive heart failure, that blood is going to start to, you know, back up into the lungs. And it's really mm -hmm. plasma now that starts to kind of pull into the lungs, which will now create, if you've ever seen that pink and frothy uh, sputum that uh, people in severe CHF get. Um, but Kelly, now when we think about this, though, from the standpoint of heart failure, congestive heart failure, and you, you go on scene and uh, you kind of uh, got that call for chest pain or chest discomfort, what are some of the symptoms that EMTs and paramedics may see? Well, uh, essentially, heart failure is, is uh, the, the cardinal sign of left heart failure, which is usually what we're called for, is pulmonary edema. Um, and and what many, the, the clinical manifestation of that is, is a patient who has a respiratory complaint, but, a, but essentially a cardiovascular problem. And that's where many clinicians go wrong is they try to treat uh, the, the symptoms of congestive heart failure and, and acute pulmonary edema as a respiratory problem with respiratory drugs. And they're fogging the bronchodilators to them and they're giving them high flow oxygen or or they're even pulling the trigger on endotracheal intubation and thus making the, the clinical course of their care much more expensive and much riskier and uh, mortality rates that are significantly higher. Uh, so what you typically see is, is uh, a patient in acute decompensated heart failure or acute pulmonary edema is someone who has severe uh, air hunger, uh, orthostatic dyspnea, uh, and that sort of thing, and some, si some type of adventitious lung sounds. It is not strictly true that uh, it's only going to be crackles, uh, rails, and ronchi. Uh, wheezing can happen early in decompensated heart failure uh, as reactive bronchospasm tries to, tries to stent uh, collapsing alveoli open, and so you'll hear an end expiratory wheeze, uh, but, but 
bottom line is, is this is a, a profound cardiovascular problem with a respiratory complaint. Uh, unfortunately, the patient can't tell you that. All they know is that they can't breathe. No one calls 911 and says, uh, I believe I have uh, left diastolic uh, failure and uh, blood is backing up into my lungs. Could you please diurese me or could you please vasodilate me? Uh, and they approach it with uh, with the wrong tools. But uh, ultimately, that's, that's what it is. One one huge clue that I seem to, to see in most of my acute decompensated heart failure patients is skin signs. You can almost always tell a acute pulmonary edema patient from the first moment when you walk in, you see that exaggerated air hunger and their face stuck in a fan or in front of the air conditioner because they're craving some, some sort of peep and that airflow over in their face uh, helps them breathe a little better. And you walk in, you shake your hand, you say, hi, my name is Chris Ceballero. I'm a paramedic. I'm here to help. And they've got that bounding pulse and that ice cold, extremely clammy skin, which you don't maybe not see in a pneumonia patient or, or an asthma uh, or COPD exacerbation, but you tend to see in spades in the uh, decompensated heart failure patients, that cool, clammy skin, bounding pulse and a blood pressure that is just through the roof. Yeah. And I think that that's really a good overview. And and some of the other symptoms, you know, he talks about Kelly talks about shortness of breath, uh, even with activity, with lying down, you know, fatigue, weakness, irregular heartbeats, uh, reduced ability or endurance, uh, nausea, loss of appetite. I mean, so many different things. One of the things that really is a is a big is a big precursor to me is the medication. And I want to go ahead and yeah. talk about. I want to talk about the medications that. Uh, the patients are taken, but let's go ahead and take a quick break here. Kelly, go ahead and do the mid-show read, and uh, let's talk about medication on the other side of that break. By all means. Whether community paramedicine or the routine transport, from COVID-19 to STEMI to behavioral health, from the scene of a car crash in your city to a patient's living room in rural Montana, Pulsara connects you in real time with any member of the care team. Pulsara makes communicating across organizations and regions easy for any patient type. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build your team, and communicate in a way that's best for your team and the patient case. For more information, visit pulsara.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. Now, one of the things that uh, you know, we're talking about is, we, you know, kind of overviewed the symptoms of when somebody comes on scene. Mm -hmm. And usually what you're going to find is that they're going to have some difficulty breathing, right? Think about what's mm -hmm. happening with the heart, right? The heart isn't pumping the blood to the body. And the, that oxygenated blood isn't getting to the organs. It's not getting to the systems. It's not getting to the all the things that it needs to oxygenate. And then again, take that toxic blood out and bring it back yeah. to the lungs for, uh, you know, reoxygenation. But one of the things that I, I want to go ahead and touch on really quick, and whenever I teach uh, congestive heart failure, I always want, one, one of the things that I always look for, especially if patients are diagnosed with congestive heart failure, very seldom are you going to run a call. It's going to happen, but very seldom will you run a call and you, and you find a new onset of CHF, but you will find it, right? You'll be the lucky mm -hmm. one to be able to say, I think you, 
you may have congestive heart failure here, but the patients that have ACE inhibitors, and, and when you start to now look at their medication, this is a big sign for you, right? When we think about mm -hmm. our assessment skills, there is no better skill that a paramedic or EMT has than their assessment skills. It doesn't make a difference if you can intubate. If you don't know when to intubate, that's the problem. If starting an IV makes no difference, but your assessment skills are the most important. So I want to talk about ACE inhibitors really quick. And what happens yeah. now is as we're talking about blood isn't circulating into the body, right? Well, the kidneys, they want their blood that they, they're, they're hanging out there and they're saying, wait a minute, where, where's our supply of blood? We're not getting our supply of blood. There's something happening up there. So what's happening now is that the heart isn't, isn't pushing the blood out that it needs to send to the, to the body, Kelly. Right? So now mm -hmm. what's happening is the kidneys say, I'm going to have to send out a little chemical here. That's going to yeah. have to dilate the heart to give me more blood. So think about what's happening. The heart can't pump, you know, the heart can't pump efficiently, but now the uh, kidneys send out this, this chemical, right? So this is mm -hmm. renin and then renin now turns into angiotensin one, and then it eventually turns into angiotensin two. And then what happens now is it dilates the heart. Well, what we have to do now is give the patient an ACE inhibitor because the, the kidneys don't know what's going on. And the kidneys mm -hmm. are actually going to hurt the body by make, by dilating the heart to send more blood through it. Well, if the heart can't pump the blood that it's supposed to pump, it's not going to be able to pump more blood. So now they're yeah. given an ACE inhibitor to stop that angiotensin one from turning to angiotensin two, which will dilate the heart. So when we look at things, uh, when we look at this medication, we really have to have an understanding about what does those medications are and how they affect the body, which is going to lead you to say, this person may have congestive heart failure, Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is one of the when you see a, a, a common lack of understanding of, of heart failure and a, a cardiogenic decompensated heart failure, uh, you see it most often in EMS providers in the pharmacologic uh, treatment. Um, you, you see many, many EMS systems, uh, not so many as there used to be, but, but still a great many EMS systems still cling to this circa 1940s cardiorenal model of treating heart failure, which has been disproven uh, and and uh, uh, shown to be ineffective, at least for emergency treatment since the 1980s. Uh, what we tend to follow, uh, when I say cardiorenal model, uh, the, these treatment mainstays of digoxin and, and diuretics, uh, uh, loop diuretics like Bumex and Lasix. Um, and what, what people fail to understand is, is the patient, uh, with, uh, acute pulmonary edema and decompensated heart failure is not suffering from volume overload. As a matter of fact, the, the data shows that they're suffering from relative volume, uh, deficiency. They're, they're somewhat dehydrated. Uh, so the problem is therefore not a volume, uh, overload problem. It's a fluid distribution problem. And, and the, so things like Lasix has actually proven to worsen outcomes, uh, and, uh, in acute decompensated heart failure. Uh, and, and it's, it's only a, a, a kind of a one trick pony for, for some limited long-term management. Uh, of the signs and symptoms of heart failure. It doesn't really have a, a decent place in our uh, armamentarium for, for treating emergent uh, 
acute pulmonary edema and decompensated heart failure. What we tend to follow now is this cardiocirculatory model that arose in the 1980s that is still applicable to our emergent treatment of the decompensated heart failure patient. But, but uh, as you alluded to with, with your mention of, of ACE inhibitors, uh, the understanding of treating heart failure now is more of the neurohumoral model and, and, and acknowledging the role of neurohormones like uh, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, and that sort of thing, and blocking their various effects with things like and uh, ACE inhibitors uh, that, that prevent angiotensin 1 from being converted to angiotensin 2 in the lungs uh, and newer, even more modern antihypertensive agents uh, like uh, uh, angiotensin 2 receptor blockers like uh, Losartan, Kozar is the, is the brand name, uh, which is a, a, a significantly uh, potent um, antihypertensive agent that helps with those uh, heart failure patients without having some of the inherent risks of, uh, of ACE inhibitor uh, um, yeah. induced angioedema. Um, right. But that's, that's the thing where we lag behind. Chris, if I had to ask you what, what treatment tool has revolutionized EMS care of yeah. heart failure, you'd probably say what? Oh, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that that's a great transition as to where yeah. we need to go with, you know, because you mentioned Lasix, you know, and, and the way that we used to treat it back in the dinosaur days was, yeah. uh, you know, Lasix and, and, you know, morphine and, you know, same way and we nitro, treat and, and only nitro, one of them worked. <laughs> exactly. But this is all we knew. Right. And then yeah. really the, the revolution the revolution came when EMS really, you know, the tail started to wag the dog when we were the ones who said, you know what, how about this CPAP and using CPAP in the field? And, and really the ER wasn't ready for that. You know, we were really yeah. kind of taking this step and this really kind of changed and the standard of care now, you, you know, where it used to be Lasix and nitro and morphine and all this other stuff. Now it's CPAP. And if you don't have CPAP on your trucks, you are not meeting the standard of care when it comes to treating CH. Jeff, but I want to, I want to, uh, you know, just take a quick step back as we're getting up there in time, Kelly. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we did a good job of overviewing what CHF is, how uh, CHF happens, but let's talk about some of the, uh, some of the presentation that mm -hmm. an EMT or paramedic may see. Um, but before I, I, I want you to think about that, I'm going to give you that question, but there are things mm -hmm. that you have to be able now to think about with your patient that could bring CHF on. So when we think about a heart attack, a heart attack could kill the muscle of the mm -hmm. heart, as we know, which could eventually move into a congestive heart failure a little bit down the road. Now the heart is damaged and can't do the work that we do. Certainly high blood pressure is a, is a big catalyst for a lot of different things, stroke and heart attack and uh, congestive heart failure, right? So those yeah. things, faulty heart valves are another thing that you need to be able to pay attention to. So now as you're doing your assessment with patients who are constantly calling for chest discomfort, uh, you've got to kind of be their advocate to say, you know, we've got to work on your blood pressure. We've got to work on your weight. We've got to work on these things, especially if we're in the community paramedicine realm of this, yeah. that you're going to see these patients more uh, often in a week, more often over a series of weeks. Uh, your job now is to help them understand that their condition could get more fatal. And then as Kelly mm -hmm. mentioned earlier in the show, that, um, this could be a death sentence, congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. If people are really getting affixed by this, 
um, they could die in a, in a five year, six year time frame. Um, but Kelly, you know, what's the presentation or how can paramedics and EMTs, when they do their assessments, make the determination that a patient is in congestive heart failure? And even though lung sounds are a big component of that, uh, it's not necessarily the end all be all of mm -hmm. what the, that presentation is. And let me go ahead and get on a, a quick soapbox before I hand it back over to you. I've said this a lot, and I want to um, I want to reiterate: every single patient that you come in contact with, you listen to their lung sounds. Every mm -hmm. single patient that you come in contact with, you listen to their heart tones. And I want you to understand what normal is, because when you understand normal, when you hear something that's out of the ordinary then you're going to say, I don't know what that is necessarily, but I know it's not normal. And then when you go to the hospital to say, hey, doc, I hear something weird in the heart. I don't hear that normal, you know, uh, S1 and S2, there's something in there. He can say, well, that's an S3 gallop. You've now taught yourself yeah. what an S3 gallop is. Or doc, there's something in the lungs I've not heard before. What is that? Oh, now that's what Ronkai sounds like. So teach yourself normal, then understand what's not normal, and then that's what that sound is going to be. But Kelly, uh, some of the symptoms or some of the presentation that a patient may have in congestive heart failure, what is it? Okay. Yeah. As I alluded to earlier, you're going to see a patient in respiratory distress. They're, they're usually going to call because they have difficulty breathing. Uh, but keep in mind that you have a respiratory distress complaint and a cardiovascular problem. And it is almost always a fluid distribution problem. Now, Chris, you mentioned the S3 heart sound, uh, which is an abnormal heart sound. Uh, and I'll fully confess that I've never been really proficient until recently uh, started to develop some proficiency at, at auscultating heart sounds, primarily because my ears suck. I've damaged them too much with unprotected uh, shooting. Um, but with my new Littman Echo Core stethoscope, uh, I can actually hear the things that I've been missing all this time. So I'm, I find myself listening to heart tones far more often than, than I once did. Uh, but that's another cardinal sign of heart failure, that, that S3 heart sound. Instead of lub-dub, lub-dub, an S1, S2 sound, you hear lub-dub D. Uh, that third heart sound uh, is, is one of the cardinal signs of heart failure. But and if you, and Kelly, yeah. but Kelly, and if you hear that, if they don't mm -hmm. have congestive heart failure yet, they're going to have it. So they're going to, yeah. If that's going to be a precursor to that, if you're able to pick up that S3 and their lungs are clear, it's only a matter of time, but I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Only, you're right. Only a matter of time. And, and you mentioned that it can be a result from acute onset, typically from a massive MI, but it can be uh, a, a chronic uh, long-term heart failure, in which case typically you see the, the typical progression from left heart failure to right heart failure. And if you were to be able to see that patient's uh, EKG, you, you might see some left ventricular hypertrophy there uh, from the strain of, of, of pumping against the, that increases systemic vascular resistance for a long period of time. Um, but uh, you look at their, uh, their respiratory pattern, they're going to be dyspneic, obviously. They will be tachypneic with exaggerated air hunger, but often they will be much more tachypneic than, say, uh, your average asthma or COPD or um, who is, who is uh, just as in, in bad a shape. 
simply because when you're having uh, acute bronchospasm, you trap air and you must forcefully exhale that air. Well, that expiratory phase, your expiratory phase in the breathing cycle uh, becomes prolonged. So often you're, you're, your decompensating asthma and COPD patients uh, are not as tachypnic as you might think simply because they, they run out of room or they run out of time to be tachypnic. Uh, the, when, when each breathing cycle takes four seconds, uh, you can't be all that tachypnic. You can't get that many breaths in in a minute. Whereas the patient with acute decompensated heart failure will often be very tachypnic and hypocapnic to boot. Uh, you will often see them hyperventilating just a bit uh, and their CO2 levels will be low. If you ever see one with CO2 levels that are high, uh, you got a problem. He's starting to fail. You will, will be unlikely to see those typical um, bronchospasm waveforms uh, that you would often see in asthma and COPD exacerbation as well. What would you see on the capnography for a patient like this? Well, you well often because these patients are tachypnic early on, they will be a little bit hypocapnic. Their their CO two will be less than thirty five, uh, but but it's not uncommon at all to see a patient with a. Uh, um, a patient with, with more or less normally shaped waveforms. Uh, they won't necessarily be that slurring of the alpha angle, uh, creating that, that, that uh, characteristic shark fin appearance that you see in acute bronchospasm. So you'll see a tachypnic, hypocapnic patient with a, a relatively normal waveform. And if the patient is relatively obese, um, you may see that upward tick of the beta angle that's characteristic of a uh, of an obese patient's capnogram as well. But uh, the main thing is 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 uh, that uh, that combination of exaggerated air hunger, orthopnea, tachypnea, S three heart sound, and normal, uh, roughly normal uh, CO two waveforms spell CHF for me. Uh, you know, you throw in their history and their skin signs and, and these patients are not going to be difficult to discern in most cases. When they, when they call EMS, they're going to be flat out desperate. Uh, they're going to be sitting up and not wanting to lie back whatsoever. Um, and, and showing you every, every indication that they are in severe respiratory distress. And quite often, most of them don't have, many of them don't have the physiologic reserves to walk from their recliner to your stretcher. Uh, so um, you have to be very careful in how you deal with them. Uh, your scene clues are going to be a big thing too, man. I mean, how many patients have we seen where their entire world has shrunk to the recliner, uh, the coffee table, and the TV remote? And they're they're um, they're trailing a hundred feet of oxygen tubing around them, and they have all of their pills and all their medications <laughs> right there in that one spot because they can't even lie flat in a bed anymore. They have to sleep in a recliner. Uh, and and that that how many pillows do you sleep on night question becomes moot because they say, well, I can't I can't lay down in a bed at all. I have to sleep in a recliner. And that brings that up a good thing. that brings up a good point too as we're getting up there in time. And, uh, you know, usually peripheral edema is something that we check. We check for pitted edema in the mm -hmm. lower extremities, right? And, you know, we press on their feet and it's, we count how long it takes for the, the, you know, to get back to normal if it yeah. does. But the very first place that you will find edema is where, Kelly? Where are you going to find edema? The very first place. You got an idea? Um, uh, if you're talking about peripheral edema, um, in the, the supine patient, it's usually presacral. Uh, it is in the 
Yeah, if you're talking about just general edema, usually they say that right heart failure uh, stems from left heart failure. So I would say that uh, the most common you'll see is, is pulmonary edema first and then peripheral edema afterwards. Awesome. Um, but, one but, of the, uh, but I think we've really, yeah, I think we've really kind of covered. I mean, we did a lot in this show yeah. and I think we really went a little bit longer than we usually do. Mm-hmm. But for everybody out there, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really need your help so we can get more likes and we can get this show out to the people who really need the information that we're given. Contact the Inside EMS team at the show at ems1.com to share ideas, suggestions, and feedback, or if you'd just like to be able to join as a guest. But Kelly, excellent job on this. And I think we really gave a great overview of congestive heart failure. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And, and it's nice doing a clinical issue for uh, for a welcome change. We, we need to hit a few more of them. And instead of opining on on the ills of EMS, talk about the, the medicine a little bit. Uh, I'm going to leave you guys with, with one last thing. When you see your CHFR, uh, when you see your CHF, there are two tools in your arm inventarium uh, that are extremely useful, and only one of which uh, many EMS services are using aggressively. CPAP is the first one. Uh, but the other half of that equation is really, really aggressive doses of vasodilators, particularly nitroglycerin. If you're working in a, in a progressive EMS system, they are allowing their medics to, to use double and triple doses of, of uh, nitroglycerin at shorter dosing intervals, even push dose uh, nitroglycerin while they're setting up an IV drip and aggressive use of uh, IV uh, ACE inhibitors like captopril and that sort of thing. And, and that's going to serve you much better than morphine and Lasix ever will. Uh, aggressively use your nitroglycerin. Don't be afraid to use your CPAP. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What other clinical issues would you like to see us tackle? We'd love to take a shot at it. Just send us your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.